0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Don't check out, because the only way that anything gets better is if you lean in and try to fix it.
2: Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley.
0: And I'm Carlos Olivares, a fourth-year foreign affairs major graduating in December and an intern at the Center for Politics.
2: In this episode, we talk with Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan. She is also CBS's chief foreign affairs correspondent, based in Washington, D.C. Margaret Brennan is a Center for Politics scholar and a member of the Center's advisory board. She graduated with highest distinction from the University of Virginia in 2002, where she earned a bachelor's degree in foreign affairs and Middle East studies with a minor in Arabic. Enjoy our conversation. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. We wanted to start by asking you to share who and what inspired you to become a journalist.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be able to have a conversation like this. Um, you know, my mom was the first one to suggest to me that I become a journalist or look into it. Um, I had studied foreign affairs and Middle East studies at UVA, I minored in Arabic. Um, and I was. In school, thinking I'd be, I don't know, a diplomat, have something to do with foreign policy making. And when I studied abroad in Jordan um, through a program that um, my Arabic professor at UVA hooked me up with, it was a Fulbright Hayes grant to study Arabic language at Yarmouk University. And that experience of studying abroad really changed a lot for me. It was like the first time I was taking what I learned in the classroom, which I loved, and trying to live real life with it and realized how different first person experience really is. Certainly when you're, when you're learning a language and, you know, um, you know, doing exams and speaking in a classroom is very different than the way people in the street talk to each other every day, or, you know, everything you learn about politics is just different about how people actually in the real world interact and, It really made me value first-person experience that much more. And that was journalism, really, um, and seeing the value of it. And uh, so I applied for an internship at CNN in Atlanta, unpaid. um, And that was my first experience working in journalism. And it was because my mom said, why don't you try this? You're always complaining about the news. Why don't you try working in
0: it? Your career as a journalist has led you to become the second-ever female moderator of Face the Nation. And you've said that to be a good moderator, you have to be, quote, allergic to ideology and willing to question the premise of any idea, regardless of who presents it. How do you keep your personal biases in check as a moderator, especially when interviewing someone you disagree with?
1: Yeah, I think right now, um, one of the things that worries me a lot about the state of our country and our democracy is our inability to talk to each other and communicate around ideas. It's like the political rhetoric is so, in my view, out of touch with real life. And we've we've learned that a lot just through our focus groups with voters and through talking to policymakers. It's like people in America know that there's a very difficult problem set facing us. And we should be talking more and more about that. And so that's how I think about the approach to the show in terms of Um, you know, even just sorting through guests, it's like, who's going to be the best person to speak on the substance of an issue and not just deflect and go into talking points. So that's part of um, trying to sort out some bias um, in terms of, how I engage with the guests. It's just going back to all those things you learn in a classroom or in in my experience at the kitchen table with my dad, who was an analyst on Wall Street and an investment banker for a long time, where he was just to the point where, you know, when you're a teenager, you get in arguments all the time um, because he would be devil's advocate uh, and just really kind of challenging you to back something up. And it's honestly, it was great training as was you know the the education I had at UVA in the classroom to try to, for example, study social movements, which I did um, with a few professors, including David Waldner, on things like political economy and pulling apart why people do things at certain moments in time. It's just becoming and bringing that analytical sense to all problem sets. Now it's hard because we're all human. It's not like you don't. Um, bring your own personal experience to the table. I think there are ways to make that an asset. Um, But in terms of like, how do you separate sometimes that human reaction from the work? It can be hard. I'm thinking of Uvalde and the school shootings that just happened and how hard that was for all of us on our staff um, coming in and working through it and having covered Sandy Hook. Like there, if you aren't feeling some emotion or reaction to something so awful and so tragic, then you're not being human. Um, I wouldn't call that bias. Um, but I would call that, you know, something where you are struggling to balance, um, the personal and, the uh, with the professional. But I do think some of these things like that, like the basics of keeping kids safe, you can't help, but, Bring a, a level of seriousness um, to it, um, and so, anyhow, that that's the balancing act um, we go through, and I go through.
2: Margaret, you you mentioned among the problems facing our democracy is an inability to talk to one another, and you know also that people know there are difficult problems. We've we've also seen that Americans are. Lack confidence in newspapers and in television news. It's plummeted to an all-time low, and and this is also a major problem for democracy, since an informed citizenry is central to a healthy democracy. Um, and and you know at the same time we we we're seeing that that trust is is mediated, moderated by partisan affiliation, um, and and that's a primary driver of of trust in media. Um, I, I wonder how, you know, broadly speaking, how you would go about restoring public trust in the news media and and addressing the structural problems that have led to the
1: decline in trust. This is a huge and horribly difficult problem you highlighted. Um, I wish I could say I have a solution for it other than, I mean, you know, in real life and personal relationships, like if you lose trust in someone, it is so incredibly hard to rebuild it. Um, and, I am also keenly aware of the public opinion polls from Pew and others that show, you know, public opinion of the media, whatever that phrase means, um, is right up there with numbers of Congress, um, which is not high. And I think part of the way I think about things is I wish that there were sharper distinctions drawn between journalists and commentators, especially in cable. I think that's dangerous and irresponsible to blend opinion in. I think it is something that we need to be responsible about on, you know, on my program, we have a lot of conversations about how to deal with guests who might spew facts that aren't actual facts, (laughs) right. Um, Talking points that aren't facts, I should say. Um, And how to just drive back to verified information all the time. So I, I focus on that a lot and I view my role is just being able to control the what comes out of my mouth and on the hour of TV we have. Um, and I take that responsibility very seriously, but this goes beyond journalism. This is, there there are so many different cross currents here. Look, the media industry writ large is also going through structural issues, right? With trying to do more with less and then whatever media means, because certainly, um, in-depth investigative journalism is different than a Twitter commentator or someone who's just giving their opinion, who's calling themselves a journalist. And I do think we need as consumers of information, and that's a lot to put on consumers, but they need to be aware of the information sources they are choosing and build that trust in that relationship with someone who they see as responsible and is coming back and correcting the record or providing um hard sources of information to cross check things. You know, if someone's just making you angry, um that's not journalism, right? That's that's like outrage porn. Um and that's that's not the thing to be consuming, and that's not the thing that's going to be helpful to our society. But broadly speaking, we have a crisis of confidence in institutions writ large. And the pandemic added that to the medical profession. I was talking to a doctor the other day who told me he hadn't spoken to his brother in 10 months. This man is a, you know, a specialist in his medical field, and his brother just Googled stuff about vaccines and all of a sudden thinks he's an expert. Um, this anti-establishment, anti-elite <laughs> um, thing that is happening in our society, we have to recognize it. We have to look. At how to communicate with people who sometimes don't want to absorb or be open to fact.
2: I, I want to follow up on something you mentioned about fact checking, and and you are of course well known for for doing a wonderful job of pressing in and leaning in on questions, um, but also being fair. I, I want to ask how you balance that responsibility of factual accuracy while ensuring you can still maintain access to interviewees or sources.
1: That's a really good question, and it's not always easy, and. Um, you know, it's something where we get flack, I get flack. <laughs> or the thing that I, I hate is when people who work on this program get flack because of me. <laughs> um, And that happens. Um, But you know what, this is business. It's not personal. And for me, I think we are in such a state of crisis in our country that if you're just coming on to do PR, like, don't waste my time. and Don't waste our viewers' time. And frankly, like, who who does that help other than you, right? Like, you owe it to the public if you are an elected official to be able to engage on the issues that matter to your constituents and to the country, period. Um, And there are some people who are really good at that and who are really um, good on their feet. And the people I respect the most who are those who are willing to sit and answer questions. One of the things I hate is when people just hide behind talking points and Twitter screens. Um, I think there's a dangerous streak that we're seeing in this election cycle, too, where you see candidates refusing to engage with debates or with interviews. Um, and that is not showing respect, I think, for the public. Um, you deserve more than 140 characters.
2: We know that we we know from surveys that American adults show limited knowledge about geography and world affairs. Um, and foreign policy is usually not a major factor in voters decisions at the polls, as much as I personally would like for it to be. (laughs) Um, and I'm sure you would as well. I wonder how you would frame to the public the benefits of paying more attention to what's happening around the world, Um, and how would it give us a better understanding of our own politics and the state of our democracy?
1: Here's where I challenge the question, and I know exactly what you're talking about because like pollsters will tell you that, like, oh, basically Americans don't care about anything other than themselves, which is probably true. I think that's human nature, but I think it, it does matter in moments of crisis Think of 9/11, and all of a sudden, national security became something people were interested in because they were terrified. Um, I think you're feeling that way right now about probably about the economy. You know, people may throw out the business section, but then all of a sudden, we're in an economic crisis, and everyone cares about it. In terms of like Americans and our place in the world, I think we're in this really President Biden would call it a decisive decade. I'd say it's a dangerous one. Think that's the better word, um, where Americans may be at a point where they can't afford not to care anymore. Um, you know, it used to be that, say, there, there was this cliche that I remember when I was in financial news of like, you know, America sneezes and the world catches a cold. That's still the truth because we are the world's largest economy and we influence so much. But there's a place called China that is nipping at our heels hugely. And the amount that our countries are interlinked with each other economically and will become increasingly adversarial, it certainly seems, may make it impossible for Americans to pretend that's not happening. Um, And I think that's being recognized. You know, two of the few points of bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill, at least at this moment, are concerned about Ukraine when it comes to countering Russia's invasion there and countering the threat posed by China. Closer we get to 2024, Republicans are making it clear this is going to be a big issue for them. They're trying to like out hawk each other on China. And this is going to become something that we may see more divide on in terms of what's the right way to approach uh, a country that that is increasingly an adversary a competitor and americans won't be able to ignore anymore
0: so on that theme of uh foreign affairs and you mentioned ukraine as well um you recently interviewed ukrainian president vladimir zelensky on your show um, about the ongoing war in ukraine and in that interview you discussed several things from western aid to ukraine to the mass graves to nuclear deterrence Um, but can you talk about your approach Uh, Just selecting the topics for an interview and how you draw attention to the most important issues uh, within those topics.
1: We have been fortunate to have President Zelensky on the program twice now at Key Moments and his ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, on a number of Ukrainian officials. And we've done that because we recognize how to get back to your other question, um, how central it is um, for folks who may not care about a country 5,000 miles away. They are feeling the impact uh, in terms of the impact on the energy markets, adding to the inflation there. They're seeing the impact with their food prices, whether they're aware of it or not. Globally, there's a food scarcity and security crisis in uh, the African continent, partly as a result of this. This is something that you can draw direct lines to why it matters to everyone, um, including here in this country. And that's putting aside all the matters of principle in terms of defending and defining who we are. Um, President Zelensky, I think is fascinating. And he is just so unusual because I don't, I haven't ever seen anyone weaponize information the way he has so effectively in the West. And shame appears to be one of his most powerful tools. Um, in terms of speaking directly to people and to uh, the parliaments and congresses or, or around the world to shore up support for his cause, um, and and that's how we like frame this and choose to engage in some of these big national security issues. Um, and he's the most effective, I think, communicator on the on the Ukraine front. Um, but we try to go to to the the decision makers on any issue, uh, whether it's at the White House and trying to talk to the national security advisor, I would love for President Biden to talk to us about Ukraine or China or something. He has an open invitation to come on this program. He hasn't since he's been president. Um, but that's how we think of, you know, we have an hour and there's a lot of crisis in our country. Like, what are the things that need to go at the top of the list that people can't afford not to know?
0: So that kind of touches on that follow up is what aspects of the war in Ukraine should be put forward or given more coverage in the US? And how can television news and anchors like yourself uh, portray these aspects to get Americans more invested in the outcome?
1: It's incumbent upon communicators and journalists and lawmakers, frankly, um, to communicate and to connect the dots. Um, You know, we recently saw uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, who may be poised to become the next Speaker of the House if the Republicans take the majority in the House in these upcoming midterm races, raised questions about um, whether there will continue to be, in essence, a blank check um, to continue to help provide weapons and funding to support the Ukrainians against the Russian invasion. He's, he indicated it would be harder in a new Congress to continue to do that. Um, he may be right, just given where the, you know, economic direction of the country is. Um, but framing it in terms of there's this like limited pie and and warding off Vladimir Putin somehow comes at the expense of something else, uh isn't fair politics um or accurate, but it's also not appreciating the problem set here. I mean, we are literally seeing the foundations of the global order shaken. Um, the very basic premise of how our country, you know, Americans, Americans don't like losing. They may not know the details, but they don't like losing and they don't like looking weak. I do fundamentally believe that. So after World War II, when everyone said might, do, might doesn't make right anymore, the UN was created, the IMF was created, the World Bank was created, the entire global order was created. We are watching two men, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, ask us if we really mean it. Did we really mean it when we said never again? Did we really mean it when we set up these rules of the road? Because they're saying, no, you didn't. And we're going to write our new rules of the road. And that's how I think of this moment we're on. And I wish that we got more attention towards that like basic framing of defining who we are as a country. Um, in terms of the ins and outs of the war in Ukraine, I think of something we studied when I was at UVA, which was Rape as a tool of genocide and conflict. Like, I wish that got more attention. Um, but, you know, I, 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 there's so much there. I mean, the war in Ukraine, I think, is going to be with us for for a while in terms of its legacy. It's, it's really incredible to watch what's happening.
2: You mentioned that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are trying to rewrite the rules of the road. In what ways do you see them challenging the international order?
1: Um, well, the rules of the road being written by Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are the opposite of what was crafted at the UN, right? It, it is might make us right. It is I can annex by force and no one's going to stop me. It is that I can continue to carry out atrocities just like Vladimir Putin did in Syria, and he is in Ukraine, without any kind of consequence for it. Um, and so the West has been really challenged at this moment to look at some of those um, warts and those flaws and what we say we stand for. Um, I, you know, that, that's, that's where I raise questions about the global order. And like, we need to kind of really take a hard look at ourselves and whether we're living up to it. Um, and and in terms of revitalizing some of these international organizations, I mean, we should be doing an autopsy of how the World Health Organization, the World Health Authorities, like, weren't better prepared for the pandemic that just devastated this country and countries around the world. Like, you know, you want to have this after action report to say, hey, guys, let's let's prepare so we don't do this again. (laughs) And right now, I think it's so overwhelming for all of us that there are so many crises on so many fronts that I feel like it's, um, it's disorienting. And so That that's what we should be holding our policymakers and our lawmakers to account for Um, is to try to say, hey, like, let's go back to writing those rules of the road again. Like, let's not have just conversations about shiny objects and culture war issues. Like, let's talk about what it's really about foundationally.
0: Um, What advice would you have for students and for the broader public about how to sort through all of this news and information and to think critically to form their own opinions?
1: I think it's really hard right now. I think we're all feeling disoriented by the deluge of information and the deluge of just things happening in the world. And I hear so often from people when I go out and speak to groups um, that, oh, I can't stand the news, so I just turn it off. And I get that because it's a way to control what seems like a world spinning out of control. But then it also scares me. And so I would say, please don't do that or figure out like a a, a way to be healthy in your consumption of news. By the way, I'm not healthy in my consumption of news, but, um, you know, don't check out because the only way that anything gets better is if you lean in and try to fix it. So don't turn off the TV, just don't it or your device. Right. And don't just consume information sources from groups you agree with or seek out your information-affirming opinion, um, I I would really ask them to, to be aware of that and, like, keep those critical thinking skills that you have from the classroom. Like, I think back so often to, like, how would I chart this moment if I were standing in the classroom of like necessary but not sufficient conditions for it, whatever it is, you know, like bring out those academic sort of modeling to say, if I were looking at this in another country, how would I think of it? And certainly with like January 6th and political violence, and I, I look back and I, I think of it. how would I cover this if this was another country? I think that way also about the economy, any conflict I've ever covered in any country, I mean, I remember standing in Tahrir Square when Hosni Mubarak stepped down after 30 years in power in Egypt. And the focus was so much on social media as a way for the protesters to gather and how powerful it was. And it was a social media revolution. Those were the tools that they gathered with. The thing that was happening right now was at that time, I mean, was also a huge economic crisis and inflation and food that was not accessible to people in terms of pricing inflation right now is really dangerous politics. So, I think back to those classes at UVA and how I would cover those other countries and then I apply it here and I get a little scared, frankly. Inflation is not good politics no matter where you look.
2: Margaret, we started this when we started this conversation, you mentioned some of the challenges facing democracy. I want to ask one final question. What would you do to strengthen our democracy in this moment? This is
1: this is getting back to kind of what I was talking about with needing to lean in instead of tuning out. Um, it is seeking out trusted information sources, not being consumed by opinion. It is keeping those critical thinking skills. It is trying to shore up the institutions that are being weakened right now. Um, I would love for really smart people to look at ways to come into politics and to policymaking, and maybe also if they're not interested at the national level, look at their state houses and local governments, because I think we've all realized, certainly through the pandemic and then through the crisis around the election transition, um, how much we've all come to appreciate your local officials who you may not know the name of, but suddenly become hugely important, um, whether it's setting up a COVID clinic or administering your local election just to sort of go back to those basic civics classes I think is something that we could all do a little bit more of and also to just recognize that if you don't know how something works you're more easily manipulated so if you understand more about systems and processes and you read the in-depth article um, you'll be better prepared to participate in the in the democracy that we have
2: Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation and Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent at CBS. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics Is Everything. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics Is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faves. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website, at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to virginia.edu. Until next time.